Thanks, Peter, ever so much indeed. Uh, usual drill, hashtag God heals. We're um, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through our journey on, on uh, healing. And uh, over these last weeks, we've been building a, a picture of how the way God works in our lives is not isolated to either the physical or the emotional or the spiritual but when God works in one area, it inevitably uh, pushes over into another area. Physical healing without emotional, spiritual touch is quite paralyzing, as indeed is to have uh, a physical, or sorry, a, an emotional uh, healing, but still to struggle physically. Uh, and so the, the God that we know, the God that we love, the God who made us fearfully and wonderfully made, touches our lives in different areas, and that creates a, a ripple effect that goes through each and every part of us. We should expect that, we should welcome that, we should encourage that. And uh, not only is that true in terms of this subject of healing, but in fact the whole of our lives, every day that we live, this side of seeing him face to face and then being like him, every day is designed to be a healing day. Every day designed to nudge us closer to becoming the people that God has called us to be, uh, becoming closer to the person, the people that he, he longs for us to be. His desire this morning is to change us from inside out, to push us on from glory into glory. And it's in that assurance that, that God is with us today, tomorrow, and all the days, that his purpose will prevail, that we come to him and we look at a subject like this, confident that he longs to work in our lives. Everything you need, if you've missed some, is at forward slash uh, healing, burlingtonmaps.org.uk forward slash healing. And the first two sermons uh, provide the foundation, the bedrock of everything that we've built on uh, since. If you missed them, uh, go to those two first. That would be, uh, I think, the best place for you to uh, start. Let's pray together. Father, would you, would you help us because we are inadequate for uh, the task? Would you help us because all kinds of intellectual things rise in our minds and you are bigger than our intellect? Would you help us because all kinds of emotional things rise in our hearts, all different uh, reactions and yet you are bigger than our emotions. Would you help us because all kinds of fears crowd in around us. And yet you are bigger than our fears. So call us into the truths in your word we pray. Because we believe in Jesus. And we believe what he said when he said that we would know the truth. And the truth of Jesus would set us free. So where we are not free, where I am not free, Spirit of God, bring the truth of Jesus. That freedom might reign in this place. That freedom might reign in our hearts. That we might know 
what Jesus said, that if the Son sets us free, we shall be free indeed. So help us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Healing uh, the past is our topic, is our subject, our theme, our kicking off point uh, this morning. And to help us in, in, in the kind of journey that we've been on, just to recap, we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, things that happen in our past wound us, uh, and they create all kinds of um, uh, emotional uh, uh, hurts and pains and disappointments in our lives. Uh, and we also began to see a few weeks ago that it's often not so much the wound itself, although that can be incredibly hard and incredibly damaging and incredibly difficult, but it's often our reaction in response to the hurt, the pain, the sadness, whatever, that ultimately causes us the greatest uh, long-term difficulty. And uh, last week we looked at a very specific way in which we might react, uh, and we will react with things that we will think and accept as true, even though they're not true. So we talked about vows and agreements, things that we might uh, say internally, ways that we might create for ourselves an internal uh, reality out of which we then go on to live. Uh, this morning, though, I think is the biggest, deadliest most damaging, overwhelmingly most crippling reaction that we make to things that happen to us that cause us the greatest damage. And it's this, unforgiveness is the most, I think by far, damaging wrong reaction that we make when people hurt us and wound us or when life or circumstances disappoint us or throw us off course. It's therefore perhaps no surprise, no wonder that Paul, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, which is kind of like a, a circular memo to go around all the churches, is a fantastic summary of his teaching. It says, get rid of, get rid of everything that would foster an unforgiving spirit. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander and every kind of malice. It's not a, a, a suggestion, but a, a command. This is something you need to do to live well. Jesus was very clear in a similar vein. The Lord's prayer has at its heart the call on our lives to be those people that uh, as we seek God's forgiveness, we are those people that offer forgiveness to those that hurt us and wound us. In fact, so important that Jesus comes back to it at the end of the Lord's prayer and says, well, actually, you need to understand that forgiveness bit right in the middle of this prayer is so important, so important for your relationship with God, so essential for your relationship with others. If you don't forgive, then the forgiveness that you receive from your Father in heaven is blocked and stopped. It's a very, uh, a very powerful piece of uh, uh, language from Jesus. Now, I, I fully understand that in this room this morning, we have all been hurt in different ways, and some of us have been hurt in unimaginable ways. That's the reality of our fallen, broken world. 
And I can fully understand why we would say uh, right now at the beginning of our, uh, of our journey into this, well, Simon, before you go any further and start talking to us about forgiveness, you, 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 you've got to just stop because you don't understand the level of pain and heartache that I've been through. And the first thing to say is, no, I probably don't. I've probably got no idea of the pain and heartache that you have gone through. And because of that, I have diddly squat right to talk to you about forgiveness. But what we need to do this morning is lift ourselves above that level of conversation to a richer, more helpful level of conversation, I hope, where we think about the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying to us. And what we do understand about Jesus is that he has suffered in every way that we have. That he has gone through the full gamut of human experience. That he alone knows And it's Jesus, not me, somebody else, not a preacher or a teacher, but it's Jesus that reveals to us the power of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They've got no idea what they are doing. At what point did Jesus offer that prayer? To his father. Was it as the nails were driven into the tender parts of his wrist? Was it as the upright post of the cross was dropped into position and for the first time the full weight of his body came under the force of gravity? Was it after the first fight for breath as he slumped, crushed? Truth is, we don't know. It could have been any, either, or all of those. But in the midst of the full gamut of pain and suffering, Jesus cried out, lived out the teaching of his life. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Much of what I say this morning, you will have heard me say before, I make no apology It's such an important part of the gospel that we believe in and the way of life to which Jesus has called us. There's loads of misunderstanding about forgiveness. So I'm going to start there before we move into perhaps what it is and what it might mean for us today. Forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't saying it doesn't matter. It's not saying it doesn't matter. And we hear that sometimes, don't we? Oh, forgive and forget. Get over it. As if somehow what happened to you, what you experienced, what you're struggling with, is of little consequence. No, that's wrong. Forgiveness does not condone the wrong that happened to you or say, have a good trip, Ben. Blessings on your head, ma'am. Does not say, 
that what happened to you doesn't really matter. Was Jesus really saying, as they nailed him to a cross, was Father God really sharing with us as they nailed his son to a cross? Hey, this doesn't matter much. Hey, forgive, forget. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What, whatever is going on in those moments, the full weight of sin resting on Jesus... Nobody is saying in the call to forgive that what happened to you doesn't matter. Of course it mattered. Of course it matters. They were nailing him to a cross. Forgiveness is not ignoring either justice or responsibility. Sometimes to forgive requires you to remember. Sometimes we spend so much of our time trying to forget something that's wounded us that we fail to forgive. To forgive means to remember. You can't forgive unless you've remembered. And sometimes even after you have forgiven, you need to continue to remember. If a a woman is systematically abused by a husband, she might choose to walk a journey of forgiveness. But if she forgets what he's like and continues to live there, she will put herself through the same cycle again and again and again. If you forgive the father that abused you, you will remember when your own children are born. Uh, And so it's not a, a, um, if we forgive, then somehow we forget and it's all wiped. That's a misunderstand. And sometimes what we've heard when we've heard the call to forgive is to forget and act as if it never happened. That's not forgiveness at all. We don't always forget. And forgiveness is not reconciliation either. How many of the soldiers did Jesus forgive? All of them. How many were reconciled to him that we know of? One. So he forgave them all, was reconciled. To what forgiveness is not about reconciliation. He did not pray, Father, I forgive all those soldiers who one day will realize what they have done and say to me that they are sorry. Forgiveness is nothing to do with how the other person or the other people behave. Forgiveness is not dependent on reconciliation or, for that matter, the response of others. When things go wrong, there are consequences, there are trust issues, there are things that need to be rebuilt and worked out. It's not the same as reconciliation. But it is always personal. It is always personal. And sometimes we don't quite get into the forgiveness that we need to offer because we we keep it fuzzy who we need to forgive. That church really hurt me. You can't forgive a church because the church doesn't kind of exist outside of people. What's true is that people in a church hurt you. That may well be true. People in this church will have hurt you, of course. And one of the, the ways that we sometimes keep our distance from the, the call to forgive is that it, it becomes a little too nebulous. 
But actually the reality is there are people, there are individuals and circumstances that hurt us. Forgiveness is personal. Forgiveness is a process unless you're Jesus. Okay, forgiveness is a process unless you're Jesus. And Peter wanted to understand that. He wanted to count how many times and then be justified that he'd done it enough. Seventy times. Keep on going. You need to keep working at this, Peter, until you're no longer counting because then you've really forgiven. If you're still counting, you haven't forgiven. Does that make sense? And some of us will know even in that moment that we're still counting. And at the end of the day, what it all boils down to is this. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus gives us real insight when he comes to the end of a story that we'll look at before we finish this morning. You have to forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness is something that takes place here in your heart. It's not something that you do. You can do the right thing without forgiving from your heart. Forgiveness is something that takes place in our hearts. It's choosing in our hearts not to hold on to something, not to hold something against someone. Forgiveness is to give up all claims to take revenge or to pay back or to get even or to bring back what I owe. Forgiveness says you don't owe me anything anymore. The opposite of forgiveness, of course, is revenge. Revenge says I I will make you pay. You owe me. There's been a transaction and I I'm still owed by you. And I'm going to keep going at this until you pay me for what you owe me because of what you've done to me. And it's a powerful, powerful thing at work in our lives. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to Judges, Judges chapter 15. And we've looked at these verses before, but they're just brilliant in helping us understand the power of uh, revenge, how it works in our lives, and as we begin to see it and identify it, we can choose to stand against it. Judges chapter 15, uh, a page number would be great if someone's got one. 258? 258, thank you very much Pat, 258, Judges chapter 15, verse 1. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. Top tip for a young man, going to visit your wife, make sure you've got a goat. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but for some things you can't unsee, aren't there? Sorry. I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. So he goes to his wife and his father-in-law... The wife's father is standing at the door and saying, you can't go in. And the father-in-law says, not words you want to hear really, I was so sure you thoroughly hated her that I gave her to your friend. (laughs) And then he obviously sees the look on Samson's face. Well, isn't her younger sister more attractive? Now, he's managed to alienate everybody in his family in one sentence. 
It's only a bloke that can do that, isn't it? Take her instead. So the whole thing is totally weird, right? The father has given his wife, sorry, the father has given his daughter away to his friend. You can understand Samson being a little annoyed. Who's got some sympathy with Samson right now? Uh, so, so Samson understandably says in his fury, verse uh, 3, this time I have a right, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. This has been done to me. I have every right now in what I will do to them. I will make them pay for what they have done to me. So the father-in-law being uh, figurehead of the Philistines. Uh, revenge is making someone pay. Verse 4, so he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. That's pretty impressive. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails. It's amazing what you can do when your fury kicks in, isn't it? Verse 5, he lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing corn of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing corn together with the vineyards and olive groves. So the, the, the crops were, were like a blessing of the Philistines' gods, small g. And so it was an attack on their nation, on their gods. It was a really aggressive kind of uh, uh, act, not surprisingly. Now, notice what happens. Verse 6, when the Philistines asked who did this, they were told... Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Like that was going to help. But here, notice verse 7. Samson said to them, Since you, now the Philistines have killed a few people, the wife and the, the father, since you have acted like this, I won't stop until together I get my revenge on you. Since you have acted like this, killing those people, like the whole fox's tail thing was perfectly normal, right? But since you Philistines have now done this, I'm not going to stop until I get revenge on you. The spirit of revenge causes us to justify behavior that in any other context, you would totally, I would totally agree is wrong. So when revenge kicks in, when unforgiveness is flowing, we justify behavior that in any other context, we would say, that's wrong. It's why Nathan the prophet told a story to David, remember? And David goes, that's mad, that bloke who did that should be hung, drawn and quartered. Nathan goes, that's you, mate. Because in any other context, we see clearly the wrong until we're full of adrenaline and anger and resentment and revenge. Revenge justifies wrong behavior. So verse 8, he attacked them viciously, fair enough, and slaughtered many of them. Why not? Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. And notice how it continued to play out, verse 9 and 10. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. We're going to make 
him pay now for what he's now done to us because he did what he did to make them pay for what they did to him. And they were only doing that because beforehand they had done to him because... And so on and so forth, right the way back. Verse 11, then 3,000 men. Look at what's happened. A few days ago, we started off with a goat and a father-in-law. Now 3,000 men are caught up in some kind of toxic cycle. Revenge grows escalates. 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam. I merely did to them, says at the end of verse 11, what they did to me. And the cycle's not over. If you read the rest of it, the Philistines imprison him. He escapes and kills a 1,000 men with a jawbone because revenge always escalates. Now, don't misunderstand me. Losing his wife was pretty bad. I mean, I know we've joked and made flippant of the passage, but losing his wife was a big deal. I understand that he was angry. But we've moved from one wife to a whole nation in mourning, an utter catastrophe, because revenge always escalates. And there's never a point, is there, with revenge when it feels like it's done? Can you notice how each side was never quite satisfied that they'd made them pay enough? Always a a little bit more. And so quickly they became ensnared in this very powerful set of forces where you justify your behavior because it's only what they've already done. So I'm perfectly at liberty to behave like this because look how they are behaving and I will do back to them. And and we never quite finish. It never quite comes to an end. No one's ever quite satisfied. I merely did to them what they did to me. A very powerful and dangerous cocktail and consequently revenge is never complete which is why it never works because it's never over it's never finished the toxic poison is still always there you get more and more caught up in the trap but of course this is an ancient primitive barbaric story far far removed from our 21st century sophistication, and George Foreman grills. But revenge is still primitive, and it's still barbaric. Revenge is still intoxicating. Revenge still gives us energy to do hideous unkindness. Revenge still motivates. And in a moment, in the moment, we love it. It feels so satisfying. I'll show them. And in that split second, you think that your act will actually show them. Has it ever shown them? No. But in that moment, you are so convinced that despite all the other failings, in this moment, if I tie those foxtails together and I get this lighter to work, this will really show them. And it never, ever does. They'll pay for that, but actually somebody else ends up paying, don't they? And it's not them. It's never them. Forgiveness begins when we surrender the urge to get revenge. Forgiveness is a decision in our hearts not to make them pay. And even while we've been doing uh, uh, this little study in Judges, 
We've done our natural reassurance that we don't act out revenge like that. We wouldn't know how to catch foxes, let alone tie their tails. We've never reached for a jawbone to kill a thousand men. Dreamt about it, maybe. So we're feeling pretty good. Because actually I can't think of behaving in that kind of barbaric way. So I... Or is it that revenge still intoxicates our relationships when we gossip about someone? When we give someone the cold shoulder or the silent treatment? When we withdraw and treat people like they matter less than others? When our anger threshold is low, when we offer subtle undermining comments, when we can be ever so carefully subtle, but it's the same spirit of revenge that caused Samson to tie foxes' tails and Philistines to march into a village and kill an innocent wife and his father. The same spirit that lurks in us whenever there's unforgiveness. But even so, even so, we we might still be reassured because we try not to behave in those kinds of ways. You know, when someone shouts at you, you're, you're quite proud that you don't generally shout back because you're a Christian and Christians don't shout back. (laughs) or someone has hurt you and of course you'd never dream of hurting them like that because you're a Christian not this is the key not acting out of revenge is no guarantee that you are not revenge filled There are many frustrated Christians who would like to act something out, but don't because they know that it's wrong. Now, that's a good thing. Don't misunderstand me on one level, or there'd be carnage. (laughs) But on another level, all that spirit lurks within us, and we wonder why sometimes we don't feel so good. Jesus offers the true test of forgiveness. He says it's really simple to know whether you're forgiving from your heart. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's a brilliant play on words because the word pray means to wish great blessing on someone. So do you love your enemy, says Jesus, and and wish great blessing on those who have hurt you, wounded you, uh, made your life a misery, those who have persecuted you in many different ways. And what we discover in this test is that whilst we do not always act out of revenge, because we know we're not allowed to, We can still harbour that spirit in our hearts. And in the secret of our hearts, we find ourselves wishing people harm. We hear of their success and it makes us disgruntled. We hear of their downfall and it brings us pleasure. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You don't act it out because you're restrained mercifully enough for that. Me too. But it's still going on in your heart. And what that reveals 
is that we're still wanting them to pay. We're still wishing that somehow they would have to pay the debt that they owe us. And if someone else wants to make them pay on our behalf, that will be kind of just cool by us. So why is all this such a problem? If it's only going on in my head or in my heart, why does it matter so much? Well, take all of what we talked about last week and put that into the answer to that question just for a moment. And imagine the reality that it's creating. Do that at home. Think about last week and what what we create and how it creates a reality. And think of it in the light of of forgiveness. But why is it such a problem? Well, a number of things obviously just leap out at us from the Scriptures. We, We know it's a problem because unforgiveness makes you sick. Makes you sick in your heart. Sometimes it makes you sick in your body. There are very... uh. Very few, probably not any practitioners that don't uh, understand that the bitterness and anger and resentment actually have physical implications for our lives. Unforgiveness gives the enemy a foothold. We're all mixed up in the physical and spiritual world. Anyone uh, you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. If there is unforgiveness in our hearts, Satan has outwitted us. He's convinced us of a way of living that will bring us life which only brings us death. He's uh, convinced us of a way of living that will bring us freedom that only brings us into bondage. Uh, And thirdly, unforgiveness uh, alarmingly sets ourselves up against God. When we choose not to forgive, we act like we are bigger and greater than God. Think about how this might work just for a moment. You see, when someone hurts you, your sense of justice is aroused. You want them to pay. They did that to me. My sense of justice says they should be repaid for what they did to me. And our sense of justice wants us to see it happen. And when we take revenge, as it says in these verses from Romans... What we do is take God's law into our own hands. We are effectively saying when we make someone else pay for the sins that they have committed, that we're not happy with how God's going to deal with them. And we're not happy about God's timing. And we're not confident that God's always going to put everything right. So I'm going to take the law into my own hands. Now we understand that in, 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 in ordinary life, don't we? If, uh, if I, I see someone doing something wrong, I should not take the law into my own hands, however justified I might feel. Because that'll get me into trouble. But when we fail to forgive and act out of revenge, we are taking the spiritual law of the universe into our own hands and we are acting as if God is not the ultimate authority, that he's not big enough to take care of things and his timing sucks so we're going to do it right now because we want people to pay right here and right now. And maybe that's why unforgiveness causes us such trouble because we end up taking the place of God. And that can never be good, I don't think. So where do we start? Where do we start? Where do I start? How do I I move from where I am as I'm thinking of a situation or a circumstance, whatever we're thinking about uh, this morning? How how do we move? Where do we we start? Peter came to Jesus, didn't he, and said, Well, Lord, how many times do I have to do this forgiveness stuff? Because it's really hard. 
70 times 7, says Jesus. You've got to keep going till you've lost count and then keep going some more. And then at the end of that teaching, Jesus tells a story. It's Matthew chapter 18 and verse 23. You might like it open in front of you. Matthew 18, verse 23. It's a story about forgiveness. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what the conversation is about. What page number is that? 986, Matthew 18, verse 23. See it there, verse 22. I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Okay, so he owns a debt of 10,000 talents. That's more than a life's earnings. So, very simply, in that culture, he owes a debt he can never repay. He, he can whistle in the wind. He can't possibly uh, get that money. It's, it's way beyond what he can uh, pay. So, he pleads, um, verse 26, verse 27, the master takes pity on him, cancels the debt, and lets him go. So far, so good. Then we read, verse 28, when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, That's a few months' wages. So with a bit of effort, you could pay that amount back. That's not a life's worth of earnings. You could pay that back if you worked hard and sacrificed for it. Owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees, but he refused and so on. So, the, the, what's the picture? It's all about forgiveness, mate. It's not about the debt. It's not about the money. Jesus says right at the beginning, this is about forgiveness. So the first man is forgiven a debt he could never, ever, ever, ever repay. And he's forgiven it. And he's sent out, but he throttles another person for a tiny debt. In comparison, a tiny debt. He has been forgiven, agreed? But he's living as if he's not. Why does he need that money from that other slave? Why does he need a few hundred denarii when he's just been forgiven all that debt? The answer is he doesn't. He's been forgiven, maybe in his head, but he hasn't connected it in his heart. He has not understood that he is truly free, truly forgiven. And so he thinks, if only I go around and I collect enough of the debts that are still owed to me, then maybe I can pay the master back. So he reveals by the way that he lives that his heart has not engaged with the forgiveness God has given him. As Christians, we know we are forgiven, but unless we embrace it, welcome it, receive it into our hearts, we will never live with the capacity to forgive others. The only way you can have the capacity to forgive others that wound you and hurt you is to know deep in the core of your being how much God has forgiven you. That's the only way. There is no other power, no other mechanism on earth that can make that happen. Secondly, though, we need to choose forgiveness. Because this uh, servant had not understood that he was forgiven... He went out and carried on living in the same way. He carried on living, seeking to collect the debts that he thought were owed to him. If you want to step into forgiveness, firstly you need to embrace the forgiveness that God has given you. 
And secondly, forgiveness is a choice, an act of the will. I'm going to choose with gritted teeth, sheer will and the Spirit's power to live differently. I need to choose forgiveness, which is what this chap didn't do. You need both the power of embracing God's forgiveness, but also that determined choice to live in a different way. And thirdly, perhaps just to motivate us, is to recognize that uh, if we live a life of unforgiveness, it, it leads to great distress and great sorrow. It's the story that Jesus told. In the end, he was handed over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. How much did he owe? He owed more than a lifetime's worth. Was he ever going to pay it back? No, lifetime of torture. Unforgiveness leads, says Jesus, to a lifetime of torture. That's the deal. Until he paid back all that he owed. It's only when you realize that you've been forgiven from a debt that you could never, ever pay, that you will have the capacity to offer forgiveness to others. You see, what the servant didn't appreciate, and what maybe sometimes we don't always appreciate in our hearts, what we don't always fully understand, is that the king didn't, in theory, cancel the debt. Don't, debts don't get cancelled or wiped out. Don't, debts don't just get don't just disappear or get written off. Someone always pays. When we say debt's written off, someone's paying for that debt, effectively. True or false? It doesn't just vanish into thin air. Someone somewhere always pays. And if we want to lead a life of forgiveness, we will never achieve that unless we understand the deepest parts of our being that someone has already paid. They've paid for your debt and they've paid for the debts that you keep wanting to collect from others that have hurt you and wounded you. If you're in a relationship today and you're still making someone pay, however subtle, however deeply ingrained in your psyche or your spirit, you're effectively saying that Jesus hasn't paid. And we need to get up as close as we dare and watch as they put the nails in and the sword in his side, crown of thorns on his head. Listen as he cries, Father, forgive them. And understand that in that moment, that cry was not just for those soldiers. That cry was for me. I put Jesus on that cross. It was my sin that held him there. And if I don't know that, If I don't see that, I will never be able to offer forgiveness to those around me. Psalm 23. Prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Most of us choose quite naturally to fume in the presence of our enemies. You can only feast before your enemies when you've known what it means to truly forgive. So forgiveness begins when we surrender the urge to get revenge. Forgiveness is a decision not to make them pay. It's in our hearts. It's an act of the will. It's not about what you do, but it is about the state of your heart.